This is Redefining the Counterculture on Witten Radio. Make sure to check out our website at wittenradio.com. Awesome. So we're super excited to have you on today's show, and um, I, I'm just thrilled. I mean, your work is very, very impressive. Um, it goes back for decades. Um, I wanted to just ask you, you know, how are you feeling today? Because, I mean, you're coming off of a, a really, really good uh, stint here. Um, you just had uh, a book signing, and um, you're also going to be at the Nashville Film Festival this evening, I believe. And right. it's a really, 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 really great time for you. I was wondering, how do you feel? Well, you know, it's my life has been uh, a lot of surprises have happened in my life that I would have never dreamed of. First of all, having a book, for one thing. But, you know, I started out being a musician in gospel music, and then never in a million years would I have dreamed I would have ended up, ended up being president of a record label or producing as many records as I produced. And uh, so a lot of things have happened to me. It's just sort of like... Uh, I mean, I'm very blessed, and I'm lucky. Lucky is when, what, preparation meets opportunity. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. You know, you spoke a lot about, um, you know, just being blessed, and um, I know that this may be kind of a, a sensitive topic for a lot of people, but would you uh, would you accredit your success and, and good fortune to um, uh, God? Absolutely. I was raised in a, my dad was a, an evangelist, so I was raised in a, a Christian family, and I've always been a Christian, uh, and so I, I give all the praise to God because, let's face it, you know, that's that's where all things come from, and and I'm I'm just like, really believe that uh, God's been by my side this whole time. I've been through some ups and downs, and uh, He's always pulled me through. So I, I give Him all the credit. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Tony, what drew you to gospel music? Like, I know you grew up in the church, and I know that, you know, God was an important part of your life, but, I mean, you're so talented. You could have gone, I guess, with any genre of music starting out. Well, you know, I mean, my, I was started playing when I was 13 years old. I played by ear. I never could read music. And my, I was raised in a very religious family. My dad, you know, everything about our life, all things church, you know, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday night was visitation, Tuesday was sing for the shut-ins, Wednesday was prayer meeting, Thursday was Bible study, Friday and Saturday were usually going out to sing in concerts and stuff. So I was just raised in Southern gospel music, and a lot of people don't even know what that is. But if you, uh, there's a new HBO documentary about Elvis that Priscilla just put out on HBO, and uh, Elvis loved Southern gospel music, and that's basically... Back in the day, it was four guys and a piano player. And so I was raised around that, and that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to play with J.D. Sumner and the Blackwood Brothers. But then J.D. left the Blackwood Brothers and formed his own group called the J.D. Sumner and the Stamps Quartet. And don't you know, my first professional job was with J.D. Sumner. <laughs> and, uh, so it's like, you know, everything is sort of like fell into place for me like I just go keep pinching myself going, do I deserve this? But uh, I, I, And then, you know, the J.D. is the reason I got my job with Elvis because Elvis didn't hire me because I was like a great session player or a fabulous piano player. I mean, I, I definitely could play what I could play. 
but uh, it was that connection through JD which led to playing with Elvis. And uh, so gospel music was what I wanted to be when I grew up. And then I got with the biggest guy in the business, JD Sumner, and then I ended up going with the Oak Ridge Boys in their heyday. And then then ended up with Elvis. Uh, and then got into country music. But after Elvis passed away, I started playing with Amy Lou Harris and Roseanne Cash and just got turned on to country music. And country music runs a real close parallel to the same kind of folks that like southern gospel music. You know, it's like very, very uh, Christian-oriented, uh, good values, good morals. And uh, I don't know, it just was a natural place to go for me from from gospel music to country music. And then eventually I realized that, that my playing was, I was limited because I couldn't read music. So I got me a job as A&R, which is Artisan Repertoire at RCA in 1978. And then left RCA and went to MCA and stayed there for 25 years. So I actually, I lived, I sort of lived my creative life through the musicians I booked for my sessions, you know. I, I sort of lived through the musicians that I that I hired to play on records. Absolutely, absolutely. What would you say is, I guess, one of your fondest memories of Elvis? I mean, uh, you know, I, that was, I was going to delve into that, that side of you, and, um, you know, just hearing you speak about him, you know, that, that must have been something to, to know him, I guess, when he was coming up, you know? Well, you know, the first time I saw Elvis was uh, in 1969, uh Elvis opened his first show was at the International Hotel, which eventually became the Hilton, but it was called the International. And so uh, the opening night, they invited all the big stars out, you know, Merv Griffin, Dinah Ross, anybody that was anybody was there. And, of course, J.D. Sumner was invited because he was he was Elvis's hero. <laughs> so our group, we went to Vegas, and J.D. parked the bus outside the International and we had to stay in the bus while he went in and saw Elvis. Oh, wow. He came, he came back to the bus after the show and said, okay, guys, I'm going to flip a coin, and one of you can go back and meet Elvis with me. And so I actually won. <laughs> so I go back and meet <laughs> Elvis, and I'm looking at this guy going, man, because, you know, I was never really into – I wasn't allowed to listen to pop music when I was growing up. So I knew he was a big star, but I didn't really know what the king of rock and roll meant. I just didn't know what that meant. So when I met him backstage, and back in those days, he was like skinny and just looked like a million bucks, I mean, at the height of his <laughs> career. And I, I was going, man, if I look like that, I could have any girl I wanted. <laughs> and I, I just remember meeting him, and he was really, ni- really nice, and that was a really brief, brief meeting. And then fast forward, um, to uh, 1975, uh, and I got a call. Uh, J.D. Sumner's nephew had been called by Elvis to hire a couple of other singers and a piano player to come play gospel songs around his house when he was home in Beverly Hills and Palm Springs and Graceland. And so Donnie said, you want this job? I said, duh. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I want this job. <laughs> so I take that job, and, you know, and, and so the... The most special thing that I remember is the first night with Voice. We, we flew to L.A. They said, fly to L.A., check in the Holiday Inn in Hollywood, and we'll call you when he gets up. So 
we go to his house in Beverly Hills, and I remember just driving and walking through the door going, what is this going to be like, you know? And he comes out of the bedroom and walks in the living room, and we sit there and sing gospel songs, all the songs that he loved. Well, I grew up with, so I knew all the songs. And uh, that was kind of an interesting experience, being around Elvis in that kind of casual kind of way, because eventually they put voice on tour with Elvis, and we had to open up the show, so the voice would do two songs, and then the a comedian named Jackie Cahane would do 45 minutes, then the Sweet Inspirations would sing two songs, and then Elvis would come on. So after we would do our two songs in the front, I would go sit behind Elvis's piano player, Glenn D. Harden, and watch him play the show, and, and was going, man, if I could get a gig like this, this would be awesome, this would be the ultimate. Well, about a year and a half into the tour, Glenn uh, D. turns to me one night and says, hey, man, I'm I'm going to leave this tour. Amy Lou Harris wants me to go on tour with her for a year, and Elvis was playing 10 days every month. He says, I'm going to take that gig. And I said, man, put my name in the hat. I can do this show. I've watched you every night. And actually, my hustle got me the gig. And uh, so I played with Elvis in the TCB oh, wow. band. Until the bitter end, we were at the airport, August the 16th, getting ready to go on tour. The next night was it would have been Portland, Maine, and uh, we were at the airport waiting on the show plane to arrive from L.A. to pick all the people in Nashville up. And they said, "Go home. The tour has been called off." They didn't tell us why. And I was driving home in my car, and I heard on the radio that Ellis had been found. Uh, dead in his bathroom in Graceland and it just blew my mind just oh Jesus and I, and I just uh, it was just really freaky to me of course the, that poor, I was raised in a very poor family so my first thought was oh my god I've already spent the money I was going to make I was always living a paycheck ahead <laughs> <laughs> so you know I, I go back and get me a job plugging songs for a publishing company and don't you know? A few days, I get a uh, I get a call from Emmy Lou Harris's uh, manager saying Glenn D. Harden has left Emmy Lou Harris to go tour with John Denver, and would I care to come out and audition for Emmy Lou? Oh, wow! So I said absolutely. So I went out and I got that job. So I followed Glenn D. twice, and then in my book, you know, I got a book that just came out last Tuesday. I put all these people in my book, and I chronicle my life. As each intersection, like the first intersection was J.D. Sumner, uh, and he's passed away, so I have Donnie Sumner sitting in this chair that everybody sits in. It's like a theme. Everybody's sitting in this French Renaissance chair at every intersection. We take a black and white shot of them. So Donnie's in there because Donnie was there when I joined the Stamps, and he was the one that got me the job with Elvis. Fast forward to the next intersection was the Oak Ridge Boys hired me away from the Stamps Quartet, and that's when the Oak Ridge Boys were the, won every award in gospel music, every award. We had a record called Light that won Album of the Year. I won Musician of the Year. and So that was another big intersection. And then, uh, and then the next thing was Voice. So Elvis comes back into the picture again. And then after Elvis, uh, Amy Lou. But I put Glenn D. Harden in the chair, too, because Glenn D., you know, I was thinking as I got to the end of the book, uh, Melissa Core, who is my manager, said, 
is there anybody you have left out that should be in this book? And I said, Glenn D. Harden. I forgot about that. He's such an important part. And he lives in Nashville, so I had him come over, and we took a picture and uh, talked about uh, how I had followed him twice because I played a lot like Glenn D. So every intersection has everybody in the chair, and then I go through Amy Lou, and then uh, with Amy Lou I met Rodney Crowell and Vince Skill. So those people are in the book. Then I get into producing records. I joined RCA. So Jerry Bradley's my first job as a record company. Then Joe Galante, and then Jimmy Bowen. So I, then I got all the artists I produced in the book too, like Reba, Vince, George Strait, Winona, Trisha Yearwood, Patty Loveless, Lyle Lovett, Steve Earle, Lionel Richie. Um, so they're all in the chair too. They're, to me, they're all little intersections that I that I encountered and. And I, I sort of tell the story in pictures. That's why it's a coffee table book. But I do have a paragraph about every person that's in the chair to say why they're sitting in that chair. And uh, it's an easy read because as you read the stories, you get to see the characters because I also have a lot of candid photographs through, through my lifetime, you know, at parties and at number one parties and gold record parties and in concert and stuff like that. So... Uh, my life has turned out uh, pretty much better than I ever anticipated, and I, I really feel blessed and uh, thankful that it did. Absolutely, yeah. I was when you were telling me, I was kind of tearing up because, you know, it's like you you said, you know, you came from modest and humble beginnings, and it was just like when you tell your story, it's like I just hear the power of God and like how He's worked through your life, you know, like. You know, it's like you said, hey, wouldn't it be great if this happened, and then it, it happened. And then, like, you know, even when something fell through, you know, God was there to love. Oh, God, you know, and, and, you know, I had kind of like, I've always been a Christian and a believer, but when I got so involved in the record business, I kind of pushed it to the side. Uh, and just recently, I found a church in Franklin that I started going to, and I was going through this really hard time recently, and I was calling everybody to help me out, you know, give me to give me advice. And I thought, man, you know, what? I thought, why don't I just ask God to help me here? I've, you know, I've, I've said the word <laughs> faith all my life, and I had never tested my faith, you know. And I remember the preacher told me one Sunday morning, said, you know, if you have faith, it's a done deal. If you say you have faith and you really don't, then you just have hope. And hope can go either way. He said, but if you have faith, you know what what the ending is going to be. So I thought, that's right. I'm, I'm just going to put my faith in God. And don't you know, it, everything turned out like exactly the way I wanted it to turn out within two weeks. And it just made me realize that, wow, I've never in my life grew up in the church was a Christian, believed in, in faith, but never really tested it. And I tested it, and God came through. And, and I'm so, uh, I'm just so grateful that that uh, I found this church because it sort of brought me back to where I started. And uh, I feel so much better about myself now. And I look back on my career. Doing this book actually kind of made me go back and reminisce and remember how lucky and blessed I have been. It's just been so amazing. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Tony, were any, were any parts of the book hard for you? Cause I know that, you know, like you, you've had a really great life, like you said. Um, and I'm sure there were some disappointments along the way. Um, did write, did, did this book, did the creation of this book, did it open up any old wounds or? No, it, you know, I, I really don't have any old wounds. I, I, I really had some missteps here and there, but, you know, <laughs> doing the book, doing the book, the hardest part was me asking all these people to come sit in the chair, like Jerry Bradley, who's like close to 80 and he's like in really bad health. And everybody said, he won't come do that. I said, well, I won't ask him anyway. He came. And, you know, I just started going, oh, my God. And just the fact that he went to the trouble, he has trouble getting up my steps. And he sat down in my chair, and I was going, everybody that I asked to do this did it for me. And then it just brought back. I hadn't seen Jerry Bradley in like 25 years. So I got to see people I hadn't seen in a long time. And all the guilt I felt about asking them, do you mind coming and sitting in the chair? Let me take a picture of you because you're in this chapter. And everybody did it. And I was just going, wow, man, uh, I got great friends. You know, your friends are your chosen family. I found that that to be true. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, um, yeah, it's just amazing, you know, the lengths that our friends will go through to, you know, to ensure that we're okay, you know, and that. Oh, I know. It's like sometimes your friends, you'll tell your friends things, something you can't really share with their family or you don't want to share with their family. Maybe something uh, a little darker than you want to share with them. And you'll share it with a friend and they can give you advice, hopefully good advice. But, um, <laughs> Uh, it, it was it was it was a good it, it was a great. I was talking to doing this by Melissa Cor, my manager, and at first I thought I should have never brought this up. And then at the end of it, I told her I said, "Thank you so much for doing this because this makes me not take for granted the things that have happened to me." I mean, uh, I mean, I cut a song on Barbara Streisand about six years ago, and you. I was wondering why would she would want me to cut a song on her because to me she's like untouchable. How would I ever meet Barbara Streisand? And James Brolin had played a George Strait song for her on the, their first date. Wow! And uh, and uh, it's called "We Must Be Loving Right," and it's kind of a kind of a little cabaret kind of jazz piece that George had done in a Texas kind of way. So I was thinking, well, she could sing that. And her her manager said, well, she wants to cut it with a guy that cut it on George Strait because James played that on our first date, and this album is dedicated to him, and it's all love songs. And so I went out there thinking, oh, my God. You want know the Peter principle is when you rise to the level of your incompetence <laughs> because everybody thinks you can do it. Oh, you can do that. So I go out there thinking, oh, my God, am I going to embarrass myself? But you know what? When I met her, she was so sweet to me, and I'd heard all these horror stories about how she was going to treat me horrible. And so it went great. It was like the, one of the highlights of my life. And when she left, I told everybody in the studio, the engineer and the musician, I said, she was so sweet to me. And they said, oh, it's probably because you're from Nashville. Like, <laughs> she felt sorry for you or something. I was going, no, maybe it's because I treated her nice, too. Right. 
But anyway, <laughs> just stuff like that. I would have never dreamed that would happen to me. I, I was pinching myself. And, uh, and it was just one song, but to get the opportunity, I mean, being the president of MCA, playing with Elvis, just, this book, I, I, I just pinched myself. <laughs> And go, yeah. did this really happen or did I dream of this? But this book now, I, actually, the other night I went through and read through the book to make sure I didn't embarrass myself. And, uh, and it was, I kind of teared up, you know, as I was going, man, this is so wild because our family was so poor. Um, you know, we didn't have inside toilets or anything. And so we, oh, wow. it was really, really poverty. And, uh, but my dad was was such a positive Christian, and he was an evangelist. Music was we our family was a singing group, so music was the thing that lit up my life. And uh, little did I know that I would be the one that kind of my brother Jerry is a, a minister in, in Atlanta. My mm. brother Henry is a teacher out in Arizona, and my sister works at a post office in Winston Salem, North Carolina. Oh wow! Then I and then I moved to Nashville and got into show business, and uh, it just is so wild that I I was the one because I don't read music. Both my brothers read music. Both went to college. I didn't go to college. Hmm. I always say traveling on the road in bands was my college because you learn things. You know, you I really? went to every state, went to every state in the union, and now that I'm not in a band. I only go to L.A. or New York or Atlanta or Dallas for a concert or for the Grammys or for something. But, you know, I would have missed going to all those states and playing in those little churches in Eugene, Oregon and little places in Indiana and up in Maine I, because now there's no reason to go there. And so I just have learned a lot about about uh, the world from being a musician and being a musician in a band it's pretty much the life of a gypsy. Yeah, <laughs> I would definitely say that. <laughs> but and you know you, you you just keep as a musician and playing on the road, you just get a better gig. The whole deal is get a gig that pays a little bit more than the last one, a little more clout, a little more esteem. And I, once I got to Elvis, I was going, now where do I go? <laughs> <laughs> But then when I got with Amy Lou, you know, I got so turned on. I had never listened to country music, and because of Amy Lou Harris, she was really the one that turned me on to country music because she really was carried the torch for traditional country, even though she's from Los Angeles. Yeah. And, you know, I learned about Hag and about Buck Owens and about bluegrass and all this stuff, and it just really opened my eyes to music all kinds of music what i what i do like what i don't like and what i don't understand like i don't understand hip-hop i listen to it and, and i know it's like the biggest music there is right now <laughs> but i just do not understand it you know uh, i know what it's about it's about talking to that the street cred you know but country music used to be about that like when porter wagner did the carroll county accident and all that kind of stuff you know but and hip hop is about talking to the people back in the hood, but it's rapping and stuff. I just don't understand that. I really <laughs> understand songs with melodies. Like right now, the pop music that I really love the best it would be Adele, you know, uh, yeah. Ed Sheeran, yeah. um, 
and then I still love the 70s and 80s, the Eagles, uh, the police, you know, the Beatles, of course. But I, I'm really all about melodies and lyrics, and I love country music because, for the most part, it still talks about life, the middle the middle class life, which is the way I was raised, you know. Absolutely, absolutely. And by the way, I feel like I'm starting over again, you know, now that I'm <laughs> working for myself. I found this girl named Amy Sunshine, who I'm going to this uh, uh, premiere today of this movie by Eugene Jarecki about yeah, yeah. Amy Sunshine. Called the King. And she, she's in the movie, so I'm going with her on the red carpet. Okay. And and she's 13. And I, I remember when I met Allison Krauss, she was 13. Oh. And she was in a band called Union Station. And I, I tried to sign her to MCA back then, and she says, no, because I don't want to be famous. And I thought, she's got a problem. She will be famous. And <laughs> fast forward 20 years later or 30 years later, and she still has Union Station, but she also does her own records, which is, she's sort of like a one-off. And so with Emmy, she sings with her family. But I've, I heard this voice, and I've talked to her. She's like an old soul in a 13-year-old girl's body. And I just say, I just thought, she could be the next Miranda Lambert or the next Allison Krauss. And so um, she writes songs. She's a prodigy. And so I feel like I'm starting all over again. And I'm going to get her a record deal if it kills me. And if I don't, I don't, I won't feel bad because, once again, I'm doing it for the music, not for the money. You know, in the beginning, I never did. I, I had, I mean, I thought you made money in the music business, but I had no idea what kind of money you could make. You cut lots of platinum records. I found out, but that was not the reason that that drove me. You know, I always say it's more fun trying to make it than trying to sustain it once you've made it. Right, right. <laughs> it's more fun just you know trying to make it. You know, like if you make ten bucks better on the next gig, you go, "Hey man, we're moving up." <laughs> <laughs> I remember J.D. Summer used to tell me. He said, back when the Blackwood Brothers first started, they played for offerings at churches. You know. Yeah. And and they all dressed really nice suits and had big buses and stuff. And he said one night, James Blackwood said, well, J.D., I hope we break even tonight. We sure could use the money. <laughs> <laughs> break even. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, but I know what that means now. These, these young acts that go on the road, once I was at a record label, these new acts, the first couple of years, they don't have a life, and they pretty much are in the hole. The record company subsidizes their touring, and only after they've had like many number ones and a few of gold or platinum records do they start making some money. But it's it's really everybody gets in it for the music in the beginning. There's a few that think they they get rich immediately if they have a number one record, but but that's not true. You have to have no, lots of number one records. Absolutely, yeah, it's the farthest thing from the truth. But I feel like I'm starting over again, and it's actually fun. You know, I found this kid that was uh on CMT had a series called Sun Records last year. Oh, yeah. It about, yeah, it was about the million-dollar quartet about Jerry Lewis, Johnny Cash, Elvis, and Carl Perkins. And the kid that played Elvis named Drake Milligan, he's 19 years old, and uh, he came to see me a few months back and said, "I want you said you'd want to cut some stuff on me if I decided to cut some records. I said, absolutely. What kind of stuff do you want to do? He said, I like, I like traditional country music, like George Strait. 
And I said, boy, I would have never imagined that because, you know, everybody in country now that's young, young guys, they do a thing called bro country. Yeah. You know, every, every girl's butt is a sugar shaker, and they're all mm-hmm. driving out to the country in a pickup truck listening to Waylon Willie and Cash. Right, which right, means right. Must, <laughs> It means they must have serious sex in because those – those artists are on terrestrial radio for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and so they're thinking about a lifestyle that, in their minds, is fun. I grew up in that lifestyle, listening to Waylon, Billy, and Cash. But anyway, so Drake, I'm going to go cut some sides on him, and he's 19 years old, and he's he, you, you saw him on that show. He he channeled young Elvis so perfect. He really did. That I, I, I said, man, you know, I think you could change – this uh, cycle of country music that's in bro country back to traditional music if we have a few hits with you because you're 19 years old and nobody's going to expect that from a 19-year-old. And uh, and he's, he's young and single and he's, he's really got a good set of values. He's from Texas and he's raised in a good family. So I, it's, I feel like I'm starting over again. I feel like I when I signed uh, uh, Steve Earle and Lyle Lovett and Patty Loveless and Trisha Yearwood, <laughs> that was fun, you know. I, I remember signing them and then watching their careers explode. Uh, it was just fun being a part of that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I'm I'm super uh, happy that you touched on, um, you know, what you call bro country because, uh, you know, one of my questions for you, is, you know, how do you feel about country music today? Because it it seems like it's evolved, you know, uh, um, a little bit, you know, from well, you know, it's. Uh, Walter, it, it's it's like in a sense. I mean, I sort of after being in the record business, I was in the CA for 25 years, and ended up being president. So I just was an A and R guy. So I've always analyzed the trend. You know, you just do. You either follow the trend or you buck the trend. I kind of bucked the trend with Lyle Lovett and Steve Earle and, and even Patty at the time. But uh, you know, sometimes you just like in '89 when George Strait. Alan Jackson, Vince Gill, Brooks and Dunn, Randy Travis came along, and the Judge. That was called a class of 89. That's when that traditional sound sort of swept country radio. And all the guys were wearing cowboy hats. They were called cap headaches. And then all these broke country guys wear these baseball caps backwards like hip-hop stars, and they're called cap <laughs> But, you know, I, I really can't get into that. I, I mean... I would probably pass on doing uh, an act like Florida Georgia Line, even though they're the biggest country act in the business right now, just because it's not it's not my not my taste in music, and I, I prefer to do the things that I, I know best. And I, I, what I know best is tr- traditional country music done in a contemporary style, like Vince Gill and like George and like Trisha and Brooks and Dunn. It's, it's really you know that music is not real traditional, but it draws from tradition. Where bro country pretty much draws from hip-hop. It really does. If you listen to yeah, it, yeah, uh, I mean, a lot of these acts, well, they'll have a big hit record, then they'll they'll put out an extra record with uh, uh, another artist like Nelly or Ludacris, just to make it more more pop, you know. And I, so I, I'm, I'm ready for the cycle to turn back. I think maybe Chris Stapleton might be Sort of leading the charge on that, right? And uh, I'm hoping to, with uh, Amy Sunshine and Drake, 
to join in that crowd and push it on through. So, so that that's to me the the most fun thing about being in the music business, besides being in a business you where your work is not work to you, is making an impact. That's what you want to do. I mean, of course you want to make money, but if you can make an impact, it's like Massacre says, it's priceless. And, you know, <laughs> I remember when I signed Lyle Lowe, everybody said, who's going to play that? And I said, I don't know, but somebody will. And on the first album, we actually had three top ten records, and it created a career for Lyle Lovett. He's not a radio act anymore, but every time he sees me now, he plays the Symphony Center here and packs it out because of that first record. We had two or three little top ten hits that kind of raised his profile and said, hey, I'm Lyle Lovett. Come see me. You know, and for number one, that's what hit records do for artists. It gives you a platform to speak. And in the case of George Strait, he had 60 number one records, which I did 37 of those. And he's had, I don't know if artists can have that kind of career anymore. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, you know, back in those days, too, you know, the chart records on terrestrial radio, which is still what makes a difference. I mean, satellite radio is there, but terrestrial is what the charts pull from. Say number right. one record, number five record, and there used to be thirteen weeks for a record to go number one. And you could have three singles in a year off every album, so you cut one album a year. And now it takes twenty to thirty weeks for one song to make it to the top. And then in the case of like uh, Florida Georgia Line, had Cruz, it stayed number one for like thirty weeks. <laughs> so they had to wait almost another half a year to put out a second single from that album. And uh, the times have changed. I've, I'm so glad I was sitting in my chair from 86 to 97. That was called the, the Garth years, as we call it, you know, the golden <laughs> age. That's when every record was selling, you know, two or three million. My first George Strait record sold six million. My first Winona Judd record sold six million. Not many people are doing that these days. No, definitely not. Definitely not. Um I wanted to ask you now, you you know, you've done so much, you know, from, you know, producing to performing, um, and then like you said, you you know, you were a music executive, um, and the head of a label. Um, did you like I guess one one of them more so than the other was Well, you know, everybody keeps asking me the first question is, do you miss playing? <laughs> well what they don't know is is I never thought I was very good, and when I got my job with Elvis, it, I wasn't as excited to play for him as I was to be worthy of playing in his band, because in his band he had James Burton and Ronnie Tutt and Jerry Sheff and the 16-piece horn section, and to be worthy of playing in that band was a big deal for me, you know? I mean, I made more money playing with Amy Lou Harris than I did playing for Elvis, Um because after Elvis, Amy Lou thought I made more than I was making, so she said, how much will it cost you to play with me? And I said, I told her, and she went for it. I went, okay, that's lesson learned. You know, once you, <laughs> you set, your, set, your, set the bar, then you don't ever lower it. Um, but I don't, you know, I miss, the, I miss the instant gratification when you're playing on stage and you finish the song or maybe you have a solo in the song and you get that applause. That's pretty much a rush. In the case of Elvis, the biggest rush was when we played the 2001 Space Odyssey. And then we go into C.C. Ryder and Ronnie Tuss playing those 
jungle drums and the crowds going crazy. That was a big rush. But uh, working at a label, I didn't have the, the fear. I used to have fear every night with Amy Lou that I might mess up a song or something, you know. And uh, as a musician, I just realized that you, you've got to be good right now. <laughs> Where in, in, as an executive, you can make a mistake and you can make up for it. If you sign a bad act, then you can sign <laughs> a Vince Gill and make up for it. They forget about your bad mistake. Yeah, they sure do. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I, I really loved both, and, and I really loved working for a record company. I really did because at the record label, because I was a musician, you know, MCA was number one label in town for 10 years. My boss was Jimmy Bowen and Bruce Hinton. I think all the artists rela- related to me because I was a musician. They would come talk to me about a problem they had with Bruce or Jimmy Bowen and what should they do about it. And I think, and I was going, I'm an executive and you're asking me about my boss. But, you know, I think they, I think my, my musician uh, experience gave me a, a a little added value as an executive in A&R and as a producer because now I know musicians have to be treated really good in the studio because they're the ones that make the record for you, you know. They'll play for you or if you treat them bad, they won't play for you and then you don't get anything. I learned a lot about uh, about the dynamics of being in the studio and so in my, in a, in my way, in a way, I sort of experienced that musician when I cut a record, you know, I, I get that same uh, feeling when I hear a song come back, like when I cut, when I call your name on Vince Gill, I was, I was going, this has got to be a hit. I mean, <laughs> it just it just felt like it was before it was a hit, you know. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and it took a while for it to be a hit, but it became it really created Vince's career. And so when it did, it, he he won single of the year, song of the year, we won album of the year, he won male vocalist. Those awards for him was like applause for me. I just I just went, thank God I, I did my job, you know. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Tony, what's the biggest takeaway that you want people to get from your legacy? I mean, you've got this rich um, legacy of uh, not only music that you know that that you you know you've done, but you know, you, your footprint is in the music industry. And well, you know, I do have I do have something I'll leave with everybody. And I heard this from a friend of mine, Will Jennings, who who won two Oscars. He won won one Oscar for the uh, Officer and the Gentleman. Oh, okay. And he also won an Oscar for the Titanic, the Celine Dion song. Hmm. And and he said, let me give you some advice: always follow up, and always. Do your best job every time, and uh, you know that call from Barbara Streisand. I was thinking, she she heard of something I did on a country artist, and because I did a good job, it's getting me an, an opportunity to work with her. And another another thing happens. Uh, Billy Joel came to town to cut a track for a Leonard Cohen tribute mm-hmm. record, and he wanted the guy that had produced Steve Earle's Guitar Town to produce it. And I was going, you know, always do your best because you never know uh, who's going to hear it and what it might lead to. You know, you just do your best. And even if it doesn't succeed for what you did it for, 
uh, it might have another life. <laughs> it might lead right. you to something else. Who did that? That's really good. Who is that? And uh, I just have always followed up. When somebody calls me, I call them back. And uh, I always, if someone stops me in a, in a restaurant and says, can they give me a CD to listen to, I take it. I listen to it. If I don't like it, I just respond and say, it doesn't work for me. You know, I just, uh, I, I, I really be, I'm, I'm always sure to be kind and always sure to follow through, but always sure to, when I do work and do stuff that is that represents my work, I do it at my best. And if nobody likes it but me, that's okay. I just got the first consumer is me. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You're right. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Well, Tony, where am I, I talking to? Where are, you, where are you in? Are you in Nashville? Uh, no, no. Uh, we are based in Memphis, Tennessee. <laughs> oh, I see that 901. I, now I see. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we're close, but. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, you know, I lived in Memphis. I lived in Memphis for like about six months. I played with the Blackwood Brothers for six months, and I moved to Memphis. And then, uh, and all the time I played with Voice, we never went to Graceland to play gospel songs. We went what? to Palm Springs. We went to Palm Springs a lot. Yeah. And to and to, and to uh, Beverly Hills, but the only time I ever played with Elvis in Graceland was when we cut the Jungle Room sessions and. <laughs> the last studio record he had was way down, and I I was playing the piano on that song in, in Jungle Room, <laughs> and then uh, that was the only time I ever played in Graceland. We cut that whole record in, in the Jungle Room. I don't know if you remember that song, but it was his last studio record, uh, Way Down. Yep, I sure do. And know. Uh, mm-hmm. and and I went back two years ago to the uh, Elvis Worldwide Fan Club just to see the jungle room again because so I hadn't been there since 76 when we cut that record and it was really it's really a tacky place <laughs> <laughs> it really is you know it is like uh, it's, it looks like Tahiti you know shag carpet orange shag carpet and all this god awful uh, furniture but uh, I remember when I saw it for the first time I thought it was the coolest because it was Elvis's but it, it, I was so interesting to see that now through my eyes as an adult and as a successful uh, producer and musician. And it was the first time I saw it as a person just hanging on to my piano by my fingernails, hoping that the band would say, Hey, Tony, you're not good enough. You need to go home. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that, fear, that fear you always... One night, you know, Elvis called out Blueberry Hill on tour, which he was always capable of doing something like that. And I looked at the conductor and I said, what key? And he said, I don't know. We don't do this song. This is on stage. And, and it's not even embarrassing because, you know what? People don't understand when you're on stage with Elvis, the spotlight is only on him. And I'm sitting behind this big Steinway nine-foot grand Nobody can really see me. So so Joe Gershio said, try G. So in my mind, my mind is racing, trying to think what the Fats Domino intro was, you know. So I just started playing the rhythm of Blueberry Hill, thinking maybe Elvis would just jump in and start singing. He says, no, that's not right. (laughs) 
get up. <laughs> he came over and sat down at the piano and started playing it himself. And somebody said, well, weren't you, like, really embarrassed? I said, no, because you feel like you're on an island up there on stage with Elvis because there's 15 horns pieces, there's 20 background singers, a nine-piece band, and the only person that the audience is fixed on is Elvis. And the spotlight follows him around, and I'm in the dark back there. So, no, it wasn't embarrassing. If I can please the king, the audience audience can just forget about it. <laughs> so I got up, and he sat down and started playing it. Then he jumped up, and I joined in and finished it out. But uh, I don't think that would have worked for any other act besides Elvis. I think I would have been really embarrassed if Amy Lou had called me out one night. Because <laughs> Amy Lou, you know, was about... Her deal was the whole band. You know, it was like Willie Nelson, the family. The band is the family for Amy Lou. But with Elvis, cast of thousands behind him, it's really about him. And the only person who had to really stay on top of Elvis was Ronnie Tutt, the drummer. If he kicked a leg or did a karate kick, Ronnie Tutt had to make sure and grab it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I, hey, Walter, I've had a pretty interesting life from... J.D. Southern of the Stamps Quartet to Ellis to Amy Lou. <laughs> but, you know, uh, and then working for Lionel Richie, doing this duet record about four years ago, which is so much fun, doing the, the duet covers of all of his big hits. It was really, really fun because I felt like I'd known him forever when he walked in the studio. And... Uh, and, that, and once again, by that time, I'd already had experienced the Barbara Streisand thing, the Billy Joel thing. So my the stars in my eyes thing was over with. I knew those songs, and I hired the best rhythm section in town, the best engineer in the best studio. So when when Lionel walked in, I was ready. Uh, and it was fun. It was fun doing that record with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would imagine. Oh, and then, and then Cindy, Lauper, Cindy Lauper's last record two years ago. And it was a called Detour. It was a cover of all these 50s, 60s, and 70s country songs. But she said in Queens, when she grew up, those songs were not country. But there was no country chart. There was only a pop chart. And pop didn't wasn't a genre of music. Pop stood for popular music, which meant on the, on the pop charts was Connie Francis, Ray Price, Elvis Presley, Jerry Lewis, you know, anything. Was was on the pop charts, and so she did Patsy Cline songs and Wanda Jackson, and uh, she interviewed all the all the producers in town to see who would do the record with her, and she picked me, and I said, Cindy, don't tell me that you picked me because I played with Elvis, because that seems to define my whole career. And she says, No, it wasn't. It was your hair. I like your hair. I went, Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> She said, no, you know what? She said, the fact that you played with Elvis had a lot to do with it, not because he's Elvis, but because you understand rockabilly, you understand Elvis did country covers, he did a little bit of everything, and so it was because you played with Elvis. That was If you could play with Elvis in that band, I knew you would understand where I'm coming from. Yeah. And so, once again, I was going, I did it right again, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> That that was another that was another one out of left field when she picked me to working with her, you know. Mm-hmm. And that record is really good. It didn't really do anything, but it wasn't made for radio. It was made for the critics. And I told her, I said, you know, Cindy, what I love about this record 
is that we're not making a record for radio. We're making a record for the critics who want to see if you and I are going to phone this in or are we going to make a really legitimate record with integrity, and that's what we did. Wow. That is amazing. I mean, I'm just, yeah, like you said, you have just had an amazing, amazing, amazing life. Well, go buy my book because I know I've sold five. <laughs> my brothers and my sister brought, bought one piece. <laughs> so go, I, I know I've sold six if you buy one. It, it's in Barnes & Noble. It's, I went to the Barnes & Noble here, and it was sitting next to Jimmy Buffett. Ooh. And beneath Willie Nelson and right above Charlie Daniels, and I was going, now, will anybody even see this book between all these things? Yeah. And I bought one. I bought one just because I didn't have one by then, you know. So I went and bought one, went to the cash register, and was so embarrassed when the girl at the cash register says, this is you. I went, yeah, don't tell anybody I bought this, please. <laughs> mm-hmm. Hey, nothing wrong with supporting yourself, and, you know. You know you're, you're well, you know, I just, I, I just wanted to see if it was in there, and it was a rush walking down that, the fear of, of Maybe it wasn't on the shelf. It was like my heart started beating fast, and then there it was. And I just had to—I just had to buy it. I just had to take it home with me. Absolutely. <laughs> hey, Walter, it's been fun talking to you. Yeah, you know, interviewers—interviewers is, is is a gift that not everyone has. You know, I've talked to people who can get nothing out of me, and then I've not even given you anything to say. I've completely been a chatterbox <laughs> the whole time. I apologize. No, it's okay. I'm I'm super excited. I mean, I was admittedly I was a little nervous uh, when they told me that you know I was in fact going to get the interview with you because uh, you know I am aware of your work and I mean to me you're a big deal and so I was kind of nervous. I was like, man, I wonder if he's going to be kind of arrogant or what. <laughs> you, you were really down to earth and yeah, I, just, I keep. I think I'm gonna be discovered that I'm not as good as everybody thinks I am. <laughs> Everybody remembers me being better than I was as a piano player. They come into my house and say, play me something. And I play this piece that I learned that is kind of a classical piece that I learned by ear. And I'm really proud that I learned it. And when I finish it, I expect them to go, man, that's really pretty. They go, oh, no, man, play an Elvis thing. And I go, what is an Elvis thing? What do you mean? What is an Elvis thing? I mean, teddy bear, I was just banging. Don't be cruel, I was just banging. C.C. Router, I was just banging. What is an Elvis thing? <laughs> <laughs> so it's been fun talking to you. I, I, I don't, I haven't met you in person, but I feel like I know you already. <laughs> likewise, likewise. I mean, it's uh, it's always something when you can connect with somebody. I mean, I know it over the phone. You know, that's just, the way it was with Lionel. You know, you know, with you, it is. I mean, I'm serious when I say that when I do an interview, I'm always so hoping I'll connect with the person that's going to interview me and that they know who in the world I am. (laughs) Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, Tony, thank you so much. It was an honor. Thank you even for having me, and and, uh, I've enjoyed talking to you very much, and thank you for being so, so kind and complimentary. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. It's no problem at all, Tony. Thank you so much. Okay. Have a great day. You as well.